Well, if you have a Bible there with you, if you want to turn to the book of Second Chronicles, our sermon text is a brief one. It's Second Chronicles chapter 7, verses 13 and 14. And I'll ask if you're able to do so that you stand for the reading of God's word today. Second Chronicles 7, verses 13 to 14. Give ear to the reading of God's holy word. It says, When I shut up the heavens so that there is no rain or command the locust to devour the land or send pestilence among my people, if my people who are called by my name humble themselves and pray and seek my face and turn from their wicked ways, then I will hear from heaven and will forgive their sin and heal their land. This ends the reading of God's word. You may be seated. Well, when was the last time you heard a sermon from the book of Second Chronicles, or First Chronicles for that matter? This is, I believe, my first time preaching from, uh, from either of those books. Even if you've been a Christian for a long time, the book of Second Chronicles may not be very familiar to you, and so you can be uh, forgiven for not uh, knowing its contents. But I, I suspect that many of you uh, that may not know the book very well are still familiar with this particular passage in Second Chronicles chapter 7, this This passage contains the promise of God to his people through King Solomon. In fact, if you maybe take the time this afternoon to read through the early parts of the book, the portion that we just read, these two verses where God gives this promise to Solomon and to the people of Israel through him, this was actually an answer to Solomon's prayer in the previous chapter. Solomon asked of God, some of these very things that God promises here in these two verses. And and what was the context of this situation was the dedication of the temple. Solomon had the great honor of, of being the one God used to build the earthly temple, the structure where the sacrifices and the worship was to be done. And so the previous chapter in chapter 6 was the dedication of the temple, and it's as if Solomon knew, and he was wise enough certainly to know it, He knew that the existence of the earthly temple was no guarantee that the people of Israel would remain faithful to the Lord. He knew that this was no lucky rabbit's foot, so to speak, to keep the people in God's good graces and keep them from sin and unbelief. And so what he prayed for in chapter 6, this is the context of our passage, he prayed and asked that if if God were to chastise his people for their unfaithfulness and sin, whether that chastisement came in the form of defeat at the hands of enemies in battle, chapter 6, verse 24, or if that chastisement from the Lord came in the form of God shutting up the heavens so that it did not rain, verse 26, it's part of our text, or if he sent famine in the land or pestilence or even locusts in verse 28, or even uh, maybe the worst case scenario, captivity and exile, which we know from your Old Testament God did in fact do that on multiple occasions. He prayed that if, if that happened, if God were to chastise his people, that if his people then prayed and turned from their wicked ways, that he asked that God would hear and that God would forgive their sin and that God would bring them back to the land or heal their land. That's what Solomon prayed that his God would do. And God answers in this form of the text that we just looked at. In verses 13 to 14, our text this morning is God's gracious answer to that very prayer of Solomon. Here he promises Solomon that if, that if his people do in fact humble themselves and, and pray and seek his face and repent, that he will in fact hear their prayers. 
He will in fact forgive their sins and heal their land if they just do that, if they humble themselves and pray and seek his face and repent of the sins for which God sent these things among them. One commentator says that this, this section of the book, Second Chronicles 7, quote, reveals the heart of the books of Chronicles and is actually Chronicles' summary of the essential message of the Old Testament. I don't know, I would go quite as far as to say it's the essential message. I think Christ is the essential message, and he might not disagree with that. But it's certainly a theme you find throughout the Old Testament, these very things that we're looking at in our text today. The first thing we want to look at from our text, from this short passage, is God's hand of chastisement throughout the Old Testament. That this was not some kind of hypothetical that Solomon prayed about. Solomon knew. He knew from his knowledge of what had happened before. The things that had happened throughout Israel's history before Solomon's day were examples to him. He knew the same things would happen again, and so he prayed for mercy for those things. So you see the themes in our text in verse 13 and 14 played out in living color throughout the history of Israel in the Old Testament. Think about this in the days of Elijah. Did God not shut up the heavens so that it did not rain in Elijah's day? For three and a half years, it did not rain a drop on the land. James 5.17 says that. And 1 Kings chapter 17 is the story where that story is found. I, Elijah prayed, and for three and a half years, no rain. Imagine what that did to the land and the people's crops and their livelihoods. No rain, and he, he also answered Elijah's prayer and sent rain upon the land later on in 1 Kings chapter 18. God had mercy. Did God not often send swarms of locusts, not just in the Exodus, which we know of, but what about the days of the prophet Joel? The prophecy of Joel is all about, in some ways, this chastisement God sent upon the land of his people through swarms of locusts that ate everything. They ate everything so much to the point that it says in verse uh, 13 of chapter 1 that grain offering and drink offering were even withheld from the house of God because there was no grain and there were no grapes to harvest. They didn't have enough to eat or to make offerings to God in his temple. And what was God's message in the book of Joel, just like it always seems to be? His message in all the prophets seems to be one of one note, and that note is repentance. He tells in in Joel, he says, to return to him with all their hearts, or repent, with fasting and weeping and with mourning, And he tells them in Joel chapter 2 verse 12 to rend or tear their hearts and not just their garments. Going through the outward motions of of grieving was not enough. They actually had to be convicted in their hearts of their sin to rend their hearts and not just their garments. And what would happen if he did that? He tells them he was going to restore unto them the years that the locusts had eaten. And God certainly did just that. God still does that. He still sends these things, these chastisements, and he still shows mercy when we repent. Did God not at many times send pestilence among his people in Israel as a chastisement for their sins? Even in in, in David's day, you might know before Solomon uh, took the throne, in 2 Samuel 24, 15, God sent pestilence as a chastisement upon David for his census for trying to, to take a number of the, the men who could serve in the military 
David was relying on his own might rather than God. He was trusting in his own earthly might rather than God. And God sent pestilence in such a degree that it says 70,000 men died. And God was about to strike Jerusalem, if you know the story, and then he had mercy and stayed his hand. Think about the prophet Jeremiah. Read that that longer book of the major prophets. He speaks of sword, famine, and pestilence in the land so many times you and I would have a hard time numbering it all. It's throughout the book. Do a concordant search of that phrase if you have that online, and you will see so many so many different times where he brings up that very phrase, sword and famine and pestilence. God did these things all throughout the Old Testament, and God still judges today. These are not sometimes we fall into this bad habit of thinking, oh, that's Old Testament and God has changed. God has not changed. We saw in our scripture reading earlier that Paul says those things happened as examples to whom? To us. Not just in Paul's day, but in our day as well. What of us today? Does God still send judgments, temporal judgments on the earth now? He certainly does. Has God changed? Do his promises of, of showing mercy when we repent, do they not still apply to us as well? Does God change? No, he does not. God certainly does not change. The Bible says in Hebrews thirteen eight, Jesus Christ is the same yesterday and today and forever. Malachi 3, verse 6 says, For I, the Lord, do not change. Therefore you, O children of Jacob, are not consumed. It's because God is immutable and does not change that we have hope and that we are not consumed. Does our God not still sometimes shut up the heavens so that it does not rain? Does he not likewise send locusts to devour the crops and send pestilence and plague? None of that is outside the scope of God's all-encompassing providence. None of those things are accidents. And should, should we not, especially us in the church, those of us who believe in Jesus Christ and serve the one true and living God, should we not see this current pandemic as an act of God's just judgment in some ways? Does even our own land, which we, we often sing of God shedding his grace on thee, does our land not have much wickedness of which we need to seek God's face and repent of? These things that we might think of as being merely natural disasters uh, are not are not only part of God's His providence, but I think at times we must see them as a chastisement, a divine judgment for wickedness. The scriptures are replete with examples of this very kind of thing, and we are foolish if we think that that does not apply to us as well. We must affirm and believe that God works all things, all things, according to the counsel of His will. Ephesians one eleven. None of these things are accidents. They are not left to chance. To those who know the one true and living God, there can be no such thing as accidents or chance or coincidence. They may, they may appear like those things to our earthly senses, but they are not. There is no such thing as an accident or chance or coincidence. God still shuts the heavens so that it might not rain. God still sends locusts and other things to destroy our crops and our livelihoods. Kenya, even right now, is experiencing swarms of locusts that that defy your senses when you see the videos of it. God still sends these things. 
God still sends war and pestilence as well. Think of the four horsemen of the apocalypse in Revelation chapter 6. What does it say that they were sent to do, what they were given authority to do? Revelation 6, 8 says that these four horsemen, these symbols of things going on that God sends in the earth, it says they were given authority over a fourth of the earth to do what? To kill with the sword and with famine and with pestilence and by wild beasts of the earth. We know Revelation is about uh, basically the, the entire scope of history between Christ's first and second comings, between his coming to die for our sins and be risen again, and his coming in judgment and glory at the end of time. That's what Revelation really is about, that whole span of time. And during that span of time, those four horsemen are galloping on the loose throughout the earth, and there is sword and famine and pestilence and wild beasts. The Bible also says that judgment begins where? Judgment begins with the household of God. The household of God does not get a free pass. The household of God throughout history has not gotten a free pass. Judgment started with them and with us first and with the rest of the world afterward. These kinds of of temporal judgments of God were not reserved just for the heathen nation, just for the pagan nations or lands like Sodom and Gomorrah, like Egypt, like the Canaanites or Babylon. They were very often visited upon the very children of Israel themselves many times. So what's what's the solution to these things when they happen? When God sends these things upon any place, any land, even even a place where his people are many, what's the solution? What does our text say? You and I, I think, are often tempted to put our faith in science, in medicine. Very often, I think, that the main thing people seem to put their faith in, I don't know why, is the government. The government is who we look to now. Many people, they don't cry out to God, they cry out to the government to just do something. And very often when the government just does something, uh, no offense to anybody serving right now, but very often those things don't turn out well. Because the government is not God. They are not sufficient for these things. They are people just like you and I. We don't put our faith in science, medicine, the government, or any such thing. Now, those things all have their proper place. There's nothing wrong with science and medicine and government our neighbors doing things to help those things. God often uses those very things to show mercy and to accomplish his purposes. But we must not put our faith in these things as if the arm of flesh were somehow sufficient to save. Jeremiah 17 talks about that. We must think and believe and live and act like Christians and not like deists or atheists. Think about this, just as the cause of these things, even this current pandemic, what is the ultimate cause of this pandemic? We can, we can point the finger at China, we can connect dots all we want, and those things are not untrue, but what's the ultimate cause of this thing? The ultimate cause of this pandemic and everything like it is not earthly in origin at all, except for sin. And so the solution also must not ultimately be found, first and foremost, through an earthly or human means either. That doesn't mean that scientists and doctors don't uh, continue to do their jobs and that we don't support them and hope that their efforts bear fruit. But we should seek God's face first and foremost and not those things at all. Now, Psalm 127.1 says this. It says, unless the Lord builds the house, those who build it do what? Labor in vain. They waste their time and effort. 
unless the Lord watches over the city, the watchmen stay awake in vain. Now, Psalm 127.1 is, the lesson there is not that we shouldn't build houses or keep vigilant in our watching, but that we must never attribute our success or our security to our own wisdom, power, and might. If God is not in it, there can be no success. If he does not bless, there shall not be a blessing. If the answer to this problem is that, in our case, well, we are Americans, Americans have always been great and done great things, there will be no blessing here. We are not the answer to our problems. God is the answer to our current situation. In our text, the Lord himself gives us the right perspective on these things and the right solution as well. When he sends these chastisements on any land, the true way, the real, the real way to true healing must be found first and foremost in seeking the Lord in prayer and in repentance. You could call that revival. That's what the real solution is. He says in verse 14 that look there, he says, if my people who are called by my name humble themselves and pray and seek my face and turn from their wicked ways, then I will hear from heaven and I will forgive their sin and heal their land. What I'd like to do is look at each each one of those things in order briefly, but keep in mind, all these things go together. This is not piecemeal. We don't, we don't get to do this a la carte and say, well, I'm not going to repent, but I'll pray. I'm not going to repent, but I'll seek the Lord's face and I'll be humble. It's all a part and parcel of one package. All of it goes together. The first thing is humbling ourselves before God. We must humble ourselves before God, by whose name we are called. He says, if my people who are what? Called by my name. You know, we can argue all day about whether or not America is a quote-unquote Christian nation. I don't think this is a place for that. But God's people in this nation must lead the way in humbling ourselves if we want to see revival and healing in our land. What does it mean to humble ourselves? To humble ourselves means to acknowledge both our sin and guilt and our need for his mercy. It means acknowledging that God's judgments are holy, righteous, and just. In other words, it means saying, we deserve this. God does all things well. Even this, even worse, if it were to come, we deserve it and God does all things right. Remember that Abraham was, will not the judge of all the earth do right? He does do right. And his judgments are always just. If you take the time to consider the wickedness in our land, which I won't spend a lot of time on it this morning, but think about the abundance, the proliferation of sexual immorality of all kinds, even the kinds of perversion that God calls an abomination in his sight and which goes against nature itself, Romans 1, verses 24 to 27. Think about the sin of murder through abortion, which has taken the lives of over 60 million babies in less than 50 years. Think about the false religion and the idolatry all around, the unbelief, the atheism, the idolatry of putting the government in the place of God that is so prevalent among us. It's a wonder that God has been so patient. It's a wonder of the mercy of God that this has not been much, much more severe. This could be much worse, and we would deserve every last speck of it. God has been patient. We must humble ourselves before God Acknowledging our sin, acknowledging his just judgment and pleading him 
for mercy. We must, we must pray and seek God's face. Secondly, we must pray and seek God's face. You know, the one goes with the other. If you are a proud person, you will not pray. Or if you do pray, you'll pray like the Pharisee. Oh, Lord, I thank you that I'm not like this man over here. I thank, we thank God that we're so great. We thank God that America is so great or that we're so great. Humility and prayer must go together. Prayer must not be our last resort. It must be the first thing that we think to do. In the time of crisis or calamity, prayer must not be the last resort. It cannot be just checking the box. You know, lots of people pray. Sometimes we're tempted to think, well, you know, only real Christians pray and other people don't really. People pray all the time, but they don't pray in a Christian fashion. They just check the box. Checking the box will not do. Checking the box, kind of like what's the way some people treat church and prayer and other things. I did this, I checked the box, and I'm good to go. That's not seeking God's face. That's just ritualism. That's just going through the motions and checking the box. We must seek God's face in prayer to seek his mercy as well as his blessing. The Bible says that God's house is to be a house of prayer. Isaiah 56, verse 7, and Mark eleven seventeen. Jesus himself quotes it. If we who are called by God's name in our baptism do not pray and seek God's face, who will? No one will if we don't do it ourselves. And if God's heavy hand of chastisement does not get us praying, what will? If this current pandemic doesn't get us praying, I don't know what will. And if this pandemic does get us praying, it will have done us no harm, but rather much good. One day, if this thing gets us praying, and we turn to God in humility and prayer and repentance, and God shows mercy, we will all thank God that he brought revival through even a severe means, such as this current chastisement that we are dealing with now. What's the last thing? Repenting from our wicked ways. We must humble ourselves and pray and seek God's face and repent and turn from our wicked ways. He's talking about repentance, turning back to God from our sin. And this starts with us as Christians. If we, if we refuse to repent, all of our prayers are wasted breath. If we refuse to, to repent, our praying is hypocrisy. It's nothing better than the Pharisee's prayer that we just talked about. Look at Isaiah chapter 1, verses 15 through 17. You know, the people of, of Israel and Judah in Isaiah's day, they still prayed. They still kept all the festivals. They still offered all the sacrifices. And they were just checking the box, many of them. They were just going through the motions and thought that meant all would be well. But listen to Isaiah 1, verses 15 through 17. God says, this is God talking to his people through Isaiah. When you spread out your hands, I will hide my eyes from you. Even though you make many prayers, I will not listen. Imagine God telling you, I don't hear a thing you're saying. I will not listen. Why? Your hands are full of blood. Wash yourselves, make yourselves clean. Remove the evil of your deeds from from before my eyes. Cease to do evil. Learn to do good. Seek justice. Correct oppression. Bring justice to the fatherless. Plead the widow's cause. Take care of those who can't take care of themselves. In verse 13, God says right before that, he says, I cannot endure iniquity and solemn assembly. 
He's talking about worship. They were gathering at the temple. They were going through the motions, giving the sacrifices, doing all the things they were supposed to do, but they weren't repenting of their sin, and God said he can't endure it. He he cannot bear it. He won't accept it. He cannot endure iniquity in, in solemn assembly. If his people are to go on in sin and refuse to repent, if we do that, he will hide his eyes from our prayers and not listen to our prayers as well. But if we pray and repent... God is abundant in mercy and will hear and forgive and heal. As he goes on to say in verse 18 of that chapter in Isaiah 1, he says, Come now, let us reason together, says the Lord. Though your sins are like scarlet, they shall be white as snow. Though they are red like crimson, they shall become like wool. If we humble ourselves and pray and repent, then we may expect the mercy of God, then by God's mercy and grace, God, as he says, will hear from heaven and will forgive their sin and heal their land. He'll hear from heaven and forgive our sin and heal our land as well. Now notice what comes first in that order. When God hears our prayers for mercy, it's not the healing of the land that comes first, is it? It comes right after, but it's not the first thing. What does he mention first? The forgiveness of sins comes before the healing of of the land. Matthew Henry puts it this way. He says, pardoning mercy makes way for healing mercy. The one without the other doesn't happen. It's the same order found in Psalm 103. We often sing songs that are based on that, you know, bless the Lord, O my soul, and all that is within me, bless his holy name. Bless the Lord, O my soul, and forgive not his benefits, And what are those first benefits that he mentions in verse 3 of Psalm 103? He says, who forgives all your iniquity, who heals all your diseases. What comes first? Forgiving all of your iniquity and then healing all your diseases. We must seek forgiveness before seeking healing. If all we want is healing, it shows we aren't really repenting at all in the first place. And we, we have not listened and heard the message that the chastisement was meant to give us. Forgiveness is the more needful thing. To pursue the latter without the former is foolishness. It's as if we want to, it's as if we have a deadly disease and we just want the doctor to treat the symptoms. We don't want him to treat the disease. We just want to be comfortable. That's what that's like. It's like we have cancer and we just don't want to feel bad. We don't want to deal with the cancer. We just want to deal with the feeling bad part. That's what that is like to seek healing without seeking forgiveness. In fact, if you and I were forced to choose between pardoning grace and healing grace, which one should you choose? Pardoning grace is much more needful. Thankfully, our God in his mercy and kindness often lavishes both upon us by his mercies in Jesus Christ. He doesn't just give us the forgiveness. He often sends healing as well. Well, the same God who shuts up the heavens and commands locusts and sends pestilence as chastisement for sin, he also, according to his word and promise, he delights to show mercy to his people when we when we pray and repent, so that he does hear and he does forgive and he does heal. And I have to say this, uh, you know, if you are outside of Christ, the most needful and important thing is that you repent and seek his mercy and forgiveness for your sins And that's found only in Jesus Christ alone, by faith in him, by God's grace. If you are sitting at home somewhere watching this and listening to the sound of my voice, if you are still outside of Jesus Christ and still in your sins and still in your unbelief, 
Let this current pandemic, whether it ever touches you directly or not, let this pandemic remind you and remind us all of our mortality and the wrath of God that still abides upon you if you don't repent and turn to Jesus Christ by faith. Now, the Bible says it's appointed unto men to die once and then what? The judgment. We are all going to die one day and meet our maker. And you cannot stand in your own righteousness because you have none with which to stand. We sang a hymn earlier, not what my hands have done. We can't heal ourselves. We cannot be forgiven and stand before a holy God in our own, in our own righteousness because we have none. Only in the righteousness of Jesus Christ can we stand before a holy God and be forgiven and accepted by him as righteous in his sight only through Christ. Let this current pandemic and the things that you are so worried about drive you to Christ for salvation from sin. Now, God's judgments in this life, think about it this way, God's temporal judgments, things like this pandemic, things like war and disease and pestilence, think of them like warning shots. Think of them like warning shots to get us to flee from the wrath that is to come. And you can be you can be forgiven for all of your sin. And why is that? Why is it that God is able to hear and forgive and heal? Why is he able to forgive you of your sins and accept you and, and accept you into his heaven? It's only because of the death of Jesus Christ on the cross in the place of sinners. He took the wrath of God that your sins and my sins deserve upon himself, that you and I might be freely forgiven and reconciled to God. We who know the Lord Jesus Christ by faith must learn to seek God's face and pray for revival and repentance in our land so that God might show mercy to forgive us our sins and heal our land. That's the lesson of our text this morning. That lesson is always to be heeded. That lesson will always apply until Christ returns to places and nations and peoples on this earth. May God in his great mercy revive his work in and through us as his people, that he might grant repentance and faith to many and so forgive our sins and heal our land to his glory alone. Let's, let's pray.